Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. In this episode, let's discuss Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. We're going to discuss Guillermo del Toro's retelling of the classic Italian tale, Pinocchio, which just came out on Netflix today, the day of recording. And I enjoyed the heck out of this film. It was so wonderful. It was funny. It was sad. It had so much charm and such soul for a stop motion film. And, you know, I never really seen anything like this before in my entire life in terms of stop motion animation blended with digital CGI effects with backgrounds and stuff like that. But pretty much everything you're seeing on screen is a practical puppet set that was created by hand with love by so many animators and creators. And I think that it was just astounding what they accomplished, bringing so much lifehood, life, lifeliness, life, liveliness life, yeah. and soul to these practical characters and props. And it was incredible to watch. And I, I loved every second of it. And I really enjoyed the, the redesign of not just the characters, but the story as well. Uh, I really liked Guillermo del Toro's design of Pinocchio. And he actually, he clearly used a lot of his love for monster movies in this film, especially in the first act uh, from Geppetto's like evil laboratory construction of Pinocchio and the, the lighting and seeing him, the shadows. And it's kind of scary uh, to create this little wooden boy. And the the look of Pinocchio, it's, it's very cute, but it still is um, monstrous-esque. You know what I mean? It still feels like it feels like a movie monster, but like a cute movie monster. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I love how he put that and injected that uh, his style into the film in that way. But also the cinematography and lighting was really fantastic. Guillermo outside of um, I'm sorry, uh, Shape of Water. Uh, that movie has a very green color palette. Generally, his movies, they'll do a contrast of. Uh, warm yellows and reds with cool blues for the lighting. Uh, so if you watch many of his movies and um, even The Strain when he shot the first couple episodes. Hellboy and Crimson yeah. Peak are great examples. Yeah, so he likes to contrast uh, yellow and blue with his lighting. And that's very present in this film. And I've never seen a stop motion film uh, with such striking cinematography. Wes Anderson uh, has done a really terrific job with his stop motion films. Uh, but I think that this one had a, a more... The, the lighting was more visually interesting in this, uh, and he was really making it look extremely cinematic and using a lot of great camera techniques that you would see only with like actual cameras. So I love the care and the cinematic quality that was put into the film. Yeah, and there's so much to talk about when it comes to the stop motion, but quick, let's talk about the film, which was directed by Guillermo del Toro and Mark Gustafsson, written by Guillermo as well as Patrick McHale, and Mark Gustafsson based on the story by Carlo Collodi, and I believe that... He paid homage, homage to, to Carlo yeah. by making Geppetto's son, who's not in the original story they created for this film. There's a lot of changes that they made, I think, worked so well. And they paid homage to the creator of Pinocchio by naming Geppetto's son, Carlo. Uh, on the day of its release, which was today, the day we're filming this, on December 9th, IMDb has it right now at an 8.0. Rotten Tomatoes, it is a 98% critic score, 84% audience score. However, that could change, but we all know the, the incredible story of Pinocchio. And to quote Guillermo del Toro, you know, this is normally a kid's movie, but to, to quote Guillermo, it's not a movie made for kids, but kids can watch it if they talk, if parents talk to them. Because 
it's kind of more of an adult animated stop motion film. There are dark themes. It's obviously a Guillermo del Toro movie, so it's going to be a dark fairy tale. He's going to make it horror-esque in a lot of ways. And he made a connection to Pinocchio with Frankenstein when he was developing the story since he was a teenager he's always wanted to make a pinocchio story because that touched that the story touched him but he always saw pinocchio as kind of a monster like frankenstein created in a lab and everything like not that. the cute disney one exactly yeah. and he liked the cute disney one but i read an interview where he said that when he watched that he felt it was like a horror movie almost <laughs> <laughs> and through that lens because he has such horror roots and everything he touches he adds an element of horror to it he brought the macabre to this film and to this story. And like you said, the design of the character, the, the characters, the design of Pinocchio. It's creepy, but cute, but works. And you grow to love it so much. And it's really interesting and unique. And you never seen anything like it before. And I like how we said it in uh, fascist Italy in the 1930s uh, leading up to World War II. Uh, the original story is, I think, the century before, 1800s. Yeah, it was written in 1828. And all the uh, adaptations are set in that time, but... I think that Guillermo, uh, he he strongly uses backdrops like this because he did it in Pan's Labyrinth during the uh, the Civil War set in the backdrop of Pan's Labyrinth. And you have the commander as the villain of that movie, uh, just how, how we have another commander as the villain of this movie. I think it, it, sh it provides a really striking contrast to the idea of it being a kid's, a children's tale. And bringing real life stakes and real life conflict into the world that he created, uh, it's it made for an interesting retelling. Before we continue, we just want to let you all know that we are doing a live show on January twenty first in twenty twenty three in Los Angeles. We're selling tickets for both the in person event at the venue in Los Angeles, as well as tickets for the live stream of the event. If anyone wants to watch it from around the world. The in-person tickets are available at DynastyTypewriter.com. Just go on the calendar. You can find our event on January 21st or just go to the link in our Instagram bio for those tickets in person. And to get your digital live stream tickets for anyone around the world to tune in while we're doing the show, go to moment.co slash Raiders of the Lost. Those digital tickets will be on sale December 15th. And the online tickets are not for a pre-recorded show. We are going to be doing it live. So if you're going to be watching it online on your computer, you'll be watching it at the same time as those in the audience in the theater in L.A. And the, all the main beats were there. Uh, and he did change a couple of characters, but basically like renamed them. And uh, obviously there's no no turn into donkeys in this. And there's that it's like a, not an, it's an island of ki of bad kids or something. In the original, like the wild Toy, kids, yeah, the, yeah, the boys, the boys, yeah, yeah. the boys, yeah, the boys. Obviously, they use that as the as the f fascist kid youth camp in this. So he hits the same beats, but he just tells the story in a different way. Uh, we do get the giant um, uh, beast at the end, uh, and Geppetto's in the belly. So I like how he the story is basically the same, but the way he told it, uh, the setting. The characters, um, all the all the beats in between the major moments, were all Guillermo, and I really liked this new interpretation. I liked uh, there's a lot of uh, Catholicism in this, a lot of religious elements in this that aren't in the first one. I like how uh, Pinocchio asks Geppetto, like, why is everyone like this dude, uh, J Jesus, up on the cross? And Jay they, Christ, Jay Christ, and they sing to him. He's made of wood. Yeah, he's made of wood. Why do they sing to him and love him, but they don't like me? Uh, I thought it was a really great scene, and this movie ended up being more of a, a 
a father-son tale more than just a growing up tale like the original. Yeah, I'm surprised that critics like this so much. Not because Guillermo's not an incredible filmmaker, because he yeah. is. He's one of our favorites. We adore the guy. We watch everything he makes. We saw Nightmare Alley like multiple times. I love Nightmare yeah, Alley. Such a good I movie. It. I've seen it three times. It's the most recent film. But I mean, in terms of the religious themes and motifs in this film, religious, religious. <laughs> Did I say religious? Yeah. The religious <laughs> themes and motifs throughout the entire film present in many scenes and a lot of you know the things that Geppetto is trying to teach, yeah. uh, Pinocchio in life lessons as well as Carlo, and also we. Ha- I feel like we've been losing. A lot of great father-son stories in film. Yeah. A lot of big franchises, a lot of big movies. You don't really see some great dads anymore. You see them in some movies, but not as much as they used to be, not as much as they should. I feel like dads are often played as the idiot. They're either played as the yeah. idiot or they're non-existent. Yeah. And I feel like in the last 10 years, a lot of big franchise films and big blockbusters, we're not really seeing father-son relationships anymore. And it's really important because many of us go through a father-son relationship. And, you know, I think... Good dads are so important to talk about in stories. And I, again, I feel like they've been disappearing over the last five to 10 years. So I think it was really great to see a, a wonderful story about a father and a son because, you know, they changed it up many ways. And one of the, the biggest strengths, I think, was having Geppetto having a real son that he loses because of the war, because a bomb drops on the church. And it's a tragedy and grief that we're dealing with in the first act of the film. But I think it adds so much to. Geppetto's desire for wanting not just a new chi- a new son, but another companion and trying to replace Carlo with this wooden boy. I think it adds so much uh, tragedy to it. I agree. That was, I would say, the the best new addition to the story because in the original, he does it for to to put on a good show. He's like, I want to make a new marionette uh, that will put on a that will make a great act, and then the fairy turns him and gives gives life to Pinocchio. Well, I believe the original it's it's a uh, enchanted wood. Already enchanted? Yeah. In the original, And okay. the fairy makes him a real boy at the end. Uh-huh. Oh. I believe. Uh, I have a quick synopsis. Oh, already. no. I, well, I mean, the fairy animates him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in, the, in the original. Gotcha, not gotcha. gives him, Not completely gives him life, because he, it's the, the end of the movie. He becomes a real boy. That's the finale of the animated film. But, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean the story. Sorry. Okay, yeah, yeah. But in the original film, uh, it's more of just like Geppetto. His motivation is to just make a marionette for performance. And in this film... I really liked how he's his motivation is he wants his son back and he's desperate and it's been years and he has been able to move on. It had so many uh, had so much emotional resonance uh, for the character that Geppetto didn't have in the first film. I really liked it. I thought it was a really smart addition and then tying it in with the the fascist um, overtaking of the country with the wartime elements, with the bomb being dropped on the church, causing the death of the son. I thought it was really brilliant for Guillermo and the other writers to add that in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Yeah, it's great that you brought up Pan's Labyrinth has the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War and also the Devil's Backbone, which he made oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. also the backdrop yeah. of the Spanish Civil War. So these are kind also of... kids, kids are lead characters. Yeah. yeah. But, so, you, yeah, so you could say yeah. these three, those three movies and this is the final, you could say in like a dark fairy tale trilogy with the backdrop of war. <laughs> kind <laughs> of. should have been in our trilogy episode. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't, we hadn't seen it yet. Guillermo's childhood war trilogy. <laughs> but they, they, they do share a lot of themes. These yeah. three movies you could, you could think about for sure. This is the least dark of them all devil's backbone's pretty damn dark pan's labyrinth is a lot darker than people think we talked about how so many parents were outraged when they took their kids to see this movie even though it's rated r, rated r. but it's a dark fairy tale it's it's a rated r fairy tale for a reason yeah and i think that guillermo i mean when you're making a children's story my guess is that he he likes stories to be more challenging for audiences and you know the world is the world is a scary place so why not put that element into a film even if it's a children's story and I think that many other movies kind of avoid stuff like that. They'll they'll tackle difficult themes like death or whatever, or like divorce or whatever. But um, you'll rarely see a children's movie tackle actual war and something as complex as uh, the brainwashing of a of a civilization and and the raising of youth to be uh, militarized. And uh, I think he did a terrific job with this throwing those elements inside yeah it was a great new addition to the film as well as you know some characters were changed making it more of a musical some great dance numbers and singing was beautiful alexander desplat did the music for this film which was terrific and guillermo del toro wrote many of the lyrics for the songs as well in addition to having alexander desplat only make music with wood instruments whoa yeah. oh cool <laughs> which is really fascinating I love that. oh create... hence the lack of brass yeah to create that kind of environment uh -huh. with just just wood instruments that's terrific and i i found the the animation to be absolutely stunning the textures the surfaces the fabrics uh the dirt i mean it, it was really incredible to behold and the combination of both uh painted backdrops and then cgi backdrops but and then combined with the lighting was just absolutely stunning it's one of the most visually stunning animated films i've seen in a long time and i was just take like my breath was taken away and i really liked how they stayed true to the 24 frames per second uh the the movement of the characters is a little choppy because it it's like a true 24 frames per second they're not going 30 frames per second and then scaling it down to 24 to make it smoother which is what a lot of um animation will be i loved it it's, it takes a minute for your eyes to adjust but that's the way the projected film always looks I loved that aspect. Like I didn't, the, I noticed that animation immediately, and I was like, "He's sticking to like the old ways." It's really incredible that this was his first stop motion and film of all time in his career because of how astounding it was. Obviously, he hired very talented people, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I think obviously he was going for intense realism. I mean, these sets are all practical. The puppets are all practical and real. The only green screen really was the backdrops. Sometimes, like Andy said, it was painted. Sometimes it's CGI, CGI animated. I'm sure the water, a lot of that was animated as well. That was incredible. I'm curious that was how very they did the water because yeah. it's not real water. I don't know what the hell, how they did it. I don't know. I was we, I, incredible. When we were watching it, I was staring at the water how at some point. So I was like, off? how is this happening? <laughs> Because, <laughs> oh my God. It looked real, but not real at the same time. It was incredible. Yeah. As well as, I mean, just being around these small towns in Italy, the alleys, the sun yeah. pouring on the on the streets, on the on the real stone. It was it's breathtaking. The churches. That church with the murals inside, it felt like it was like a church we saw in Bologna. Well, because his goal was, you know, I want to make this as real and authentic as possible. And you go to an ancient city or ancient place like Italy, you know, you have... 
ancient civilization structures that are still there, even though they're kind of ruins now. But then on top of that, you have, you know, 18th century, 19th century churches. But what's hanging in the walls of these churches is 15th century art, 16th century art. So it's like a layer of civilization and culture and reality to add so much just to these single shots of this church. Beautiful. It, it's There were a lot of settings. And what I found impressive about the set design uh, in of the environments and the interiors is they felt real. And they felt like actual places, and then the animated characters were inside of them. That was really incredible to behold. I have a great little um, bit from the Hollywood Reporter article I found talking about the animation stop motion. It's like four paragraphs. Do you mind if I read it just to give us some background on how they pulled hey, it man, off? man, go for it. It's really interesting. So, according to the Hollywood Reporter, to achieve the look he was hoping for, Del Toro turned to Portland, Oregon, a s- Oregon, sorry, a hub for stop motion <laughs> talent, and approached Mark Gustafson, who was the co-director on this film, a veteran of the former Will Vinton Studios, the studio behind California Raisins, who was animation director on Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox. So the animation director of Fantastic Mr. Fox, Wes Anderson's film, was the co-director on this film. Wow. Super cool uh, tidbit right there. To team up on directing, they partnered with animation production company Shadow Machine, who are responsible for Robot Chicken and BoJack Horseman, with founders Alex Bulkley and Corey Campanicio, boarding the movie as producers... Most of the film was made at Shadow Machine, which had as many as 60 small stages operating simultaneously for roughly three years while the movie was in production. This took a long time to make, just like stop motion does. Del Toro asserts that animators are actors and that how we approach the produ- and that's how we approach the production. We guaranteed that animators that I'm sorry, we guaranteed the animators that they would be treated like actors, that between action and cut. They would make decisions and show them to us. That's why we credited the animators in the front of the credits right next to the cast. So it's really interesting. It sounds like he was taking input from the animators while they're doing the stop motion live right there on set. I saw a video someone recorded at the one of the screenings of this film, and someone asked him, how did you direct the animators? Because uh, the director of stop motion, they're not, on every, they're not there every day on set like because it takes so long to film. They're... There are different animators performing different sequences, and then they're overseeing all of it. And he said that he he said he told the animators like if a character is moving, if they're walking across the room, uh, how are they walking across the room? What what's their motivation? You got to act it for them. They don't just give them like, the typical what standard walking. Give them the personality in every single movement they make. To make it feel like a true person. Yeah, I think they did a terrific job. Yeah. We'll get to the article back back to the article in a second, but specifically with the way Pinocchio walks and flies and almost floats through the air as he's walking, kind of weightless. Then Geppetto, who's an old man and at times is staggering, drunk up and down stairs, up and down ladders, and even the carnival uh, uh, the carnival leader, he is very flamboyant and he's like always dancing as he walks and everything like that. So they nailed like every character very specifically, which was really great and how they walked. That's a great point. Now back to the article. One of the biggest skills in creating stop motion is breathing life into the puppet's movements and gestures. These are various ways of constructing puppets for stop motion, and the filmmakers mostly use the method that involves internal face mechanics covered by a movable silicone skin. You can really connect with the puppet deeply, says Del Toro, of his type of construction. Pinocchio, however was created with replacement animation, meaning that the animators replaced face parts to create various expressions frame by frame. 
head of puppet fabrication, Georgina Hens, explains that this is because it was crucial that Pinocchio appear to be made of wood. The main Pinocchio puppet was nine and a half inches tall, the most manageable height for the stop motion puppet, according to Hens. We did an early test with the silicone skin and it didn't work and it looked like rubber. Replacement animation allows to keep up the wood grain. The whole look of Pinocchio is a stylized realism. Because animation doesn't have production sound like there would be on a live action set, every character and sound in this world had to be created from scratch. Supervising sound editor and designer Scott Gershon, another Del Toro alum who worked on Pacific Rim and other films, says that the creation of Pinocchio's sounds when he moves involved a lot of wood, including maple, mahogany, and rosewood guitar woods, but also folly work, fully work in library sounds. If we only stayed with wood, it only, it only gave us one dimension to the vocabulary of Pinocchio. So then we started adding in little squeaks and other little sounds. We wanted to find the delicacy of some metal squeaks, a little bit rubber squeaks, and many other different types of wood. And also, as you listen to the film, Pinocchio, as he becomes a real boy by the end of the film, he less sounds like wood, so he started to replace the wood sounds with actual realistic sounds. I love that. Which is really great. And the cool thing about these puppets, again, they're all practically made. But each puppet has very different sizes of depending on the shot that's being done. So some Pinocchios are about the size of your fingertip. Some of them are, like I said, on average, the, the main one was nine and a half inches tall. But then there are some Pinocchio puppets that are taller than a human being because depending on the shot, let's say uh, Sebastian J. Cricket is in a shot with Pinocchio. Sebastian's a little guy. Yeah. So they had to make a giant Pinocchio head and torso and arms to... Have on the same shot as little Sebastian. If Sebastian's nine inches tall, then Pinocchio has to be huge. And then there's yeah. a little Pinocchio that's literally like the size of your thumbnail. He's tiny. So every character had different sized puppets depending on which type of shot and set was being used. That makes sense because that Pinocchio's was different because you could, I could tell that there was something different. Com- the way his face moved, the way his mouth moved when he spoke compared to the other um, puppets, um, not puppets, but just uh, characters. Because uh, their their mouths moved, and you can tell that the animators, you know, adjust them frame by frame. But the Pinocchio mouth, it, it, they couldn't do that because he's got the lines going across, going down his face. So that would definitely mess with those lines. So it, it, I, I was thinking in my head, it must be a separate piece for every single mouth movement. Yeah, so then they just replaced it yeah. in post. Because, yeah, it's like a carved mouth opening. Yeah. So it, It's like it, a pumpkin seems mouth. Almost, yeah, it yeah. like, seems impossible to do mm-hmm. without... Tons and tons of different versions, mm-hmm. and, which would take forever to do, but still looked absolutely incredible. And the cast was really terrific. Uh, Rafe, I mean, uh, Christoph Waltz as, as one of the villains, and then we got uh, Argus Filch. Oh okay, <laughs> yeah, Harry so, Potter. Yeah, let me run through the cast list because it is absolutely sna- stacked. First of all, uh, the young actor who played Pinocchio and um, Carlo was phenomenal. So that was done by where is he? He's right. Uh, he should be first on the cast list, but he's oh here he is. So we have Alfie. All right, so Alfie Tempest did Carlo and some additional Pinocchio voices. And then the main character, Pinocchio, was done by Gregory Mann in some Carlo voices as well. We had Ewan McGregor was Sebastian J. Cricket. Great. Which I loved how they called him Sebastian instead of Jiminy. Uh, yeah, David Bradley, who plays Argus Filch, was Geppetto. Phenomenal job. Terrific. Bern Gorman plays Priest. He's been in a lot of villains in, in different movies, in case you don't recognize him. He's in The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, Ron Perlman, I think this is the eighth movie he's been in with uh, Guillermo del Toro. He played Podesta. Uh, John Totoro was Dottore. Finn Wolfhard was in there as Candlewick. So he he is, did a good British accent. Yeah, he's Podesta's yeah. Uh, son. Mm-hmm. And then we have Kate Blanchett was actually in this film. She plays Spazzatora, the monkey. 
<laughs> Oscar worthy. Tim Blake Nelson plays all of the Black Rabbits in like the afterlife <laughs> playing cards. Christoph Waltz plays Count Volpe, who's one of the he's the main villain of the film, the guy who runs the carnival. Tilda Swinton was the wood sprite as well as Death, so she played both of those fairies. Uh, I recognized her voice immediately. Tom Kenny did Mussolini, the right-hand man, and Sea Captain. And then we have Anthony, uh, Anthea Greco was Podesta's wife. And that pretty much rounds out the cast. All superb actors. Did a phenomenal job. Great singing, too. Jiminy Cricket. I mean, Sebastian J. Cricket. Hilarious yeah, in this movie. Yeah, great comic relief. And, I mean, it's great because he's like this guy who's been traveling, this cricket. He's been to Peru. He's been sailing on <laughs> ships. And he's finally settling home to write his memoirs. But now he gets, like, pulled into the story with Geppetto out of sympathy and I like how they teased uh, Ewan singing and kept cutting him off a couple of times. And then he finally, we got to hear him sing at the credits. Yeah, it was it, great. It, there's some really funny moments with yeah. Sebastian, specifically when he's, like you say, he's about to sing as Pinocchio. He's told Pinocchio, like, you have to obey your father. And he's about to go into song. And then Pinocchio just opens the door and slams <laughs> it in his face. <laughs> that one killed me. But that Sebastian really got crushed so many times. And the reason he's constantly subject to amusing injuries, one of which was prominently involving a hammer, which was a blast is likely a nod to his fate in the original book where Pinocchio got annoyed by him and smashed him with a hammer and he spent the rest of the novel as a ghost. Not to mention Sebastian is basically telling the entire story from beyond the grave. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that, you know, he kept he died in that in the <laughs> original story and he's just getting beat up so much in this movie. I loved it. <laughs> it was great physical comedy. It was great. There are incredible life lessons in this story. Obviously, every iteration of Pinocchio for sure. I mean, there's been dozens and dozens of them, TV shows, movies, and I think obviously some of the most important that I think Guillermo infused to this one for sure was, you know, life is precious and important and to embrace it. And that's shown specifically with Pinocchio being immortal and he can die. He's like, oh, I can't die. This is amazing. I can come back. And then he dies. He comes back, dies, come back, comes back. And he's like, and finally, but he's learning from the fairy that every time you die, you have to spend more time in the afterlife and you'll be here with me for the end of time. Except for when Pinocchio has to save Geppetto, and he needs to go back. But if he goes back early, he becomes mortal. And the fairy tells him, make sure you make the most of it because this is the last time you can go back and you will no longer be immortal. And Pinocchio basically sacrifices himself to save Geppetto, which is so incredible. Yeah, and there's a lot of uh, themes in the original story, too, that he also put in this. Obviously, like humility, um, respecting your, your parents. Because I think that obviously rules like in obeying rules is a main theme in this film and i think that guillermo is saying rules are definitely a necessary part of life and you definitely should um obey your parents but also we need to avoid anything that's authoritarian and the author the authoritarian takeover of the fascist government is a example of that of take being of like too many rules and a ruling class over a society so uh, the rebelling against that. I think it, it, Podesta saying yeah. that Pinocchio lacks discipline yeah. is a great example of that because there's nothing wrong with discipline as long as it's used correctly in yeah. life. You know, it's important to have discipline, but too much discipline yeah. is evil. And yeah, say. and we need rules and order, but also too much rule and too much order gets you a fascist government or an authoritarian leader. So I love how Guillermo put that into it. But obviously, the 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 most important lesson of Pinocchio is not to lie 
That's the most famous, <laughs> most famous one, obviously. Yeah. And I, I thought it was really cute how his nose turned into a tree branch. Yeah, it was yeah. really with, really with creative. Yeah, it was it, really creative. It was also really creative to use that as the way they're escaping from this yeah. giant sea monster. Pinocchio, keep lying. That's how we're gonna get <laughs> out of terrific. this mess. Yeah. It's, it's great. Um, obviously, more themes include grief, as well as patience, lying, and burdens. Burdens was uh, a burdens, heavy emphasis yeah. and motif in this film. You know, placing a burden on someone or explaining what a burden is. And to Pinocchio, when well, he found out he was a burden, yeah, oh, yeah exactly. Man. Then he ran away, and yeah. so it, it's tough to find out that you are a burden to somebody. And then if you misinterpret that in the wrong way, because obviously Geppetto didn't want him to run away, even though Pinocchio was a burden on him. It's the last thing he wanted. But you know, burdens brought up multiple times in this film in the burdens placed obviously on Geppetto after he loses his son this this great grief and, and loss is just something that has to carry with him forever yeah it was it was really powerful a lot of great themes in it really great storytelling and the animation was just phenomenal I'm still I still can't get over the water sequences I mean really stunning stuff it's called the land of the toy land of toys by land the way of toys. land of toys thank you thank you. I, yeah i thought i knew it was an island that sounded silly and i i know I've, i was reading some reviews and some people are not happy with the setting being 1930s italy with the rise of mussolini fascist governments i think a lot of, some critics are like it's just a kid's story why are we, why are we putting this in there it's like anthony said i mean some stories sure just everything's fluffy and, and that's nice. the attitude that Guillermo doesn't like yeah but yeah. Life is hard. Yeah. And life can be dark. Life can be tragic. Life can be full. It is full of burdens, just like the film is. And it's important to educate people on stuff like this and history and what other countries are like, what indoctrination is like. And using the youth camp as the example of like instead of the, the land of toys, this youth camp, this indoctrination of the youth, what really happened there. It's I think it's important for people to not forget history and not forget the past and see where we've come from. Yeah, for sure. I think it was I think it was a really smart move to if you're gonna tell a story again, change it up drastically. I think it worked. And the I think it was incredible use of what propaganda is to educate children what propaganda is. Oh yeah. For example, when Pinocchio's he he runs away from Geppetto, now he's on this tour with the Carney and his act was started off with him singing about his father, but now it's turned into him putting on a pop propaganda show for the fascist rise of Mussolini at this time in the 1930s until he rebels against that. Exactly. So yeah. I think it's hard to explain to a child what exactly propaganda is, and but this is a great example of how to show them visually. Yeah, so I think that this is a, a movie kids can watch, but Guillermo's right. Like, talk to them about it. It's, it's complicated. Uh, but it's it's definitely it's not out of their headspace to understand what's and grasp what's going on. So I think kids should definitely watch this movie. Yeah, if I had a kid, definitely yeah. I would definitely show him or her this this film. Yeah. Absolutely, but great symbology with this perfect acorn as well, and how it grows into the tree that all oh, the perfect chops acorn, down. perfect yeah. acorn. Um, it's all that was left of Carlo, and that ironically becomes the tree that becomes uh, Pinocchio. Pinocchio. Which is really touching, and then yeah. the shot, the film opens with the the perfect pine cone, ends with the perfect pine cone on the tree dropping. So beautiful imagery, yeah. and again, stunning cinematography, stunning animation. I enjoyed every second of this film. I, I I definitely want to watch it again pretty soon because there's so much to it that I feel like I missed out on, or or not missed out on, but just didn't see because there's so much detail. It's so yeah. rich. I think it was absolutely fantastic, and it seems like it it's the front runner for. Uh, best animated feature yeah and some other great little animation metaphors i love the the metaphor of all these hourglasses for time and like you can they represent a life and how much time is left which is really fascinating i love the rabbits the skeleton rabbits playing cards in the afterlife <laughs> i don't know if that was like a homage to like donnie darko or something the rabbit reminded me of donnie darko so much yeah, i was thinking yeah like, the design it, 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 sounded, it, must it looked been. like frank it I, must I bet have been. it was 
<laughs> I love them. But like life after death, eternal life. Pinocchio thinks he's the luckiest boy in the world because he can't die, but then finds out that it is a burden to never die. And life would lose its meaning if you were immortal. Yeah. yeah. And I think also the innocence of children is really present in this film because, you know, Pinocchio is bullied by Podesta's son, uh, uh, Candlewick. Candlewick, yeah. And then they become buds, and then they are on that little game, that mission to stop each other in that that uh, fake war battle that his father makes them do, and they, they end up laughing at the top of the tower, and they put their flags together at the same time to win together because they're innocent and they're friends, but then the father is going to make... Uh, I can't think of his Candlewick. Candlewick. So interesting. <laughs> In the name. original, his name's Lampwick. Yeah. <laughs> Candlewick shoot Pinocchio. Um, but shoot him in the face. <laughs> the innocence of youth, and then they turn on the father. It's, yeah. I think that's a really important moment for, for kids if they're watching that film to see. Yeah, I thought it was awesome. That was great. You got anything else on Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio? I think it's a standout, uh, one of the best uh, films of the year. Alexander Desplat's score is really marvelous. Uh, and I just think it was all around. Uh, really stunning, unique, and really cool retelling of the story. And also, let's talk about Sebastian J. Cricket saving the day and giving his last, giving his wish up to bringing Pinocchio back to life, which is very, thanks, very touching. Sebastian could use that for. Anything. Then they all die. <laughs> <laughs> but that's important to see too. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Pinocchio yeah. doesn't age, but everyone passes after him. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's why when we talked about Coco recently, that's a great movie to show kids dealing with, to explain and help deal with death. Yeah. Absolutely. It's beautiful. Uh, Guillermo, what a film. Good the job, entire man. cast and crew, the animators. What what a job. What a terrific job. <laughs> I love this so much. Great job, y'all. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was also shot on two Blackmagic G2 6K cameras. Thank you so much to Blackmagic Design for these incredible Cinema cameras, if you're an independent filmmaker or videographer, cannot recommend them enough. Low-budget, phenomenal, high-quality, cinema-grade cameras. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.